91. The investment manager seeking opportunities in change. The world is constantly shaped by change and change brings opportunities, but opportunities are not always obvious. 91 was born in times of change and has seen past its distractions to seek real investment opportunities to help clients reach long-term investment goals. 91. Investing for a world of change. Find out more at 91.com. Capital at risk. 91 is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Day It's All Changed. This is a CityWire podcast in association with 91, and it's all about change management. We're speaking to people who have incredible stories to tell about moments when they faced adversity and found ways to succeed despite the odds. Today's podcast guest, Deborah Searle, has an absolutely phenomenal story to tell. She has completed expeditions all over the world, won medals at world championship level for Great Britain, has launched five companies, and she's hosted over 40 programs for the BBC, authored a book, and been awarded an MVO and MBE from the Queen. So Deborah, welcome to the podcast. And genuinely, it's such a pleasure to be talking to you. Oh, thank you for inviting me. No, thanks. Honestly, I, I, I can't wait to get into your story. It's, it's such a fascinating one. And I think a lot of our listeners, I think all of our listeners will, will, will love hearing this. So this is a day it's all changed. That means we're looking at a moment of adversity. And for you, you, I want to focus on your decision to row across the Atlantic. And, and if you're listening in, that's correct. I said row across the Atlantic, which just sounds like such a, such a crazy thing to do, but it's an incredible thing to do. Uh, and, and it took place, believe it or not, before any of the achievements that I, that I mentioned earlier. So, so Deborah, can we start at the beginning? I, I want to know why anyone... Uh, let alone a novice, uh, which I, you were at the time, right? Why, why would anyone decide to row across the Atlantic? Well, I'd, I'd always wanted to be a professional adventurer from when I was a teenager, obsessed with Ranulph Fiennes or Chris Bonington. And when this idea of an international rowing race across an ocean started, I thought, that's it. That's the unique one that nobody's done. More people have been to the moon than had rowed an ocean. And so it seemed like such a unique challenge to take on and at the time I'd met Andrew my rowing partner who's six foot five he'd rowed for Great Britain and so we thought oh it's brilliant he's going to bring in all this um, rowing experience and make up for some of the experience that I didn't have um, and I suppose because I come from the adventure background and expedition background world um, I brought that element to our team and so we were convinced we were going to win this thing. Yeah I, still I mean how how much confidence can you have that you're going to be able to get across the Atlantic? I mean, you, you know, as, as, as capable as someone can be at rowing, that that's a phenomenal feat, right? Yeah, but I think with all of these challenges and expeditions, the reality is there's a very small part of it that's often physical. There's a much larger part, which is mental and psychological and having the resilience to keep pushing forwards when it's all going completely wrong which they yeah. always seem to in one way or another <laughs> you're always at the mercy of the weather conditions and and so there's this commonality amongst whether it's up a mountain down a river crossing an ocean up in the arctic is that you're always at the mercy of the conditions and and having to respond very quickly to the challenges yeah and it's funny you say all the things that can go wrong uh, and what you didn't list there and what did go wrong on that occasion is, is that Andrew, your partner, wasn't able mm -hmm. to finish the journey. So yeah. when, when did it become clear that he wasn't going to be able to do that? Yeah, it was right from the first night, actually. We, <laughs> when we lost sight of land, um, we, we were in quite a big storm on that first night. And it, it was absolutely shocking to discover that Andrew suffers from a really 
crippling phobia of open ocean, which I know sounds ridiculous that we didn't know that, but we'd done all of our training on the River Thames near Putney. So we had absolutely no idea that it was going to be a challenge for him. Um, and it, it over the next week, he, you know, his, his health deteriorated very dramatically. He wasn't really eating or sleeping. And by the end of the first week, we, we had to call a rescue boat to come and help us. And I then had this impossible decision do I get off onto the nice big rescue boat and go home with Andrew or do I choose to stay out here on my own knowing full well that they couldn't follow along behind me so for however much longer the remaining 3,000 miles took I'd be completely alone. Wow so, so yes you said that an impossible decision and yet I think for 99.9% .9 of the population there's nothing impossible about that decision at all I think most people are, are going on the rescue boat and my, my question for you is, is did, you know, why did you ultimately decide you were going to keep on with this? And, and did you not have a moment of doubt or a moment, you know, a moment of reflection where you thought this is, this is a fairly insane task to do with two people, let alone just myself? Yeah, I, I, the reality is I think we all probably have these key decision moments in life, which of course is what this was, where, you know, we've got this stormy ocean to face whether that's in our business lives or our home life and and it, the easy option would seem to be to drop out but of course it's never the most fruitful in fact there's it's always in that adversity that we we grow the most and and so I I had to bring it down to something that seemed more manageable and so um I, I felt it was really key to focus on controlling the controllables uh, and and I'd often say to myself while I was we, we were waiting for the rescue boat Deborah, what is the next small, simple step that you're in control of that you could take next that would allow you to at least try on your own? Because I, I, I just thought, could I possibly live with this regret for my whole life that I didn't at least try for a few days? Um, but of course, it did seem, it, it seemed from everyone else's point of view as well that it wasn't the right decision to carry on alone. And that's partly because there were four other double-handed men's teams. I should have explained at the beginning, there were 36 teams from 16 different countries all of them had two men in the boat, except for Andrew and I, who were the only mixed sex team. And, you know, as far as the rescue team was concerned, they'd already had four boats, sorry, three boats where one had been rescued, the other had continued alone. And those three solo attempts had, had already quit before they'd even got to me. So you wow. could see how it looked to them. Like, you know, these were big, strong guys. They were talented rowers. And this was little wifey Deborah who's never even <laughs> rowed before. You know, they must have been thinking she hasn't got hope in hell of making it on her own. Um, but I but I think what really struck me was that I believed it was possible and and I had to really cling on to that that even though no one else seemed to think it was possible I believed it was possible and I I just thought I've got to have this kind of contagious belief so that I can make the race organizers believe it's possible I can get my team in the short team I had back in the UK to believe it's possible and I just every time I talk about this concept of carrying alone I've just got to be so contagious in my positivity that this can be done so that they're all prepared to come along on the journey with me metaphorically yeah it, it seems like it's all about mindset but it's actually so interesting to hear that and I want to go into that in a second, but but first, a, a scenario which seems unlikely that you'd be left out on your own. But did, did you plan for that? Did you, you know, when you were undertaking your risk assessments and looking into, did you ever prepare for the scenario where you might be by yourself? I, I did mentally a little bit, but you, you, of course, the things you're more worried about is you're planning for what happens if the boat gets attacked by a shark, because... <laughs> You know, it's only six millimetre thick plywood and a bit of paint and a few stickers. So I was focused an awful lot on um, the sharks, the uh, being run over by a container ship, being washed out of the boat by a big wave. 
I had though heard of someone else who tried to row an ocean with a partner and their partner had been rescued and he continued alone and I was I was so kind of inspired by his journey that I wanted to at least try and emulate what he had tried to achieve. Yeah and uh, just to go back to the mindset thing because I, I did want to uh, get into that in particular what what was it like for you that first night when you were by yourself? You know, it was I, I, terrifying. <laughs> I mean, that was when reality really hit home. You know, all of this bravo, uh, bravado of, yeah, I'm, you know, I believe it's possible. And then you sat there in the pitch black, looking down at this black water beside you, knowing that there's two kilometres of it and there's only six mil plywood separating you from whatever's right. down there. And knowing that help is now hundreds of miles away, of course, that's when it, it did get really terrifying. And so on those nights, I realized that my mindset would run wild. I would be having all these flights of fantasies about being eaten by sharks. I knew I wasn't going to make it if I spent the whole time thinking like that. And so I came up with this how bad is it scale where one was you're being eaten by a shark because that's <laughs> about as bad as I could imagine. Yeah, that today. seems like a good place to put yeah. the bottom. Yeah. yeah. And then 10 would be like, you, you've made it to the finish line in Barbados. Yeah. Um, and, and on my worst nights at sea, I'd put myself on this how bad is it scale. And I think, well, come on, Deborah, you're not at a one because you're not being eaten by a shark. You're not at a two because there's not a hole in the bottom of the boat. You're not at a three because you've still got food and water. And by the time I'd worked myself back up this how bad is it scale, I think well, I'm about a seven. And yet moments before I was convinced I was at a one, like I can't deal with this anymore. My stress levels were through the roof. But then once I shifted my perspective by putting myself on this how bad is it scale, then I could shift my attitude to something so much more helpful and productive and positive. And, and I came back to that how bad is it scale time and time again, just to try and shift my perspective so I could shift my attitude. And, and I have to say, that's been a really valuable skill to have learned out there because I've, I, I came up with a COVID how bad is it scale. And it's been really helpful just in this last 18 months or so to refer to that on the days when we're furloughing staff or we're, you know, we've lost a load of contracts. In a, and, in it, and once you put yourself on the scale, you realise it's actually not as bad as you think it is. Yeah, it, it still absolutely staggers me, honestly, when you think about what the worst can happen might be I, I mean I imagine when you're on a boat if things go wrong how, how far away were, were any rescue operations if you needed them yeah and I, and I do look by now and realize I was pretty foolish in a way to have carried on because help was a long way away um, once you're I guess over about 500 miles offshore they can't come out in a helicopter pick you up and take you home because there's not enough fuel range on the helicopter to do that so they can only get to you either by diverting a super tanker or container ship or um, by yacht. And so I had, there was one rescue yacht and they ha obviously had to get Andrew back to medical assistance. And so for most of the time, I, I, I had no one nearby and, and it would have taken them on average two weeks to get to me if something had gone wrong. So they just gave me a massive first aid kit <laughs> and said, there you go, you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, that'll sort it out. Yeah, <laughs> that shark bite, you're absolutely fine. Get, get a bandage on it. Yeah, makes sense. Oh, Deborah, that, that, I honestly, I can't imagine. I, I really can't imagine. And, and another thing, and you mentioned the lockdown as well, and I think this, this plays into it. Um, what's daily life like for you when, you, when you're out in the open water? Because like I, I found in lockdown personally that, that the moments of, of being by yourself, you know, hours and hours of not talking to anyone, that, that can have a, a huge impact on your mindset. So how, do you, how did you deal with that? How did you pass the time? You know, what, what thoughts were stuck in your head? How did you deal with it? Yeah, it's, it, I have to admit, the hardest part of the journey was the loneliness. I just think we're all 
we've got so much love to give and receive and communication to do. And when you see nobody for what wasn't the six weeks that Andrew and I planned it would take, it was three and a half months I was out there alone. That is too long to be alone. And, and I think we've all found that through lockdown that when you're restricted from seeing the people you care for or the people you work with, it can have a very demoralizing effect. And so I did have to find quite creative ways to stay in touch with the team. And they were particularly good at um, finding creative ways to keep me going. And I, I needed that because I, I couldn't do it alone. And it taught me a huge amount about how, you know, wherever we sit in our organization, we only have this one vantage point, don't we? We can't see all the other angles. And I needed their support and their perspective from those other angles because I, the longer the journey went on, the more my vantage point seemed to get smaller and smaller. You know, I just, it was hard to see the opportunities and to keep going because it was just a really grueling way of life. Yeah, and I, I can imagine it just wears you down. I, can, I, can't, I can't picture any circumstance in which this is something that is enjoyable. I mean, what did you do for entertainment? How did you keep yourself, keep your spirits up? Well, it's a, it's a really basic routine. It's like two hours rowing, one hour off, two hours rowing, one hour off. And you do that 24 hours a day because you've just got to keep the boat moving otherwise it blows backwards. Um, and then in my one hour off, there was always a lot to do. It seemed busy. Like you've got to, um, you've got to run the water maker. So you suck up seawater through the bottom of the boat and through a pipe, it goes through a desalinator, which is run by solar panel. And then you, um, you use that purified seawater to rehydrate some freeze dried food. All of that seems to take quite a long time. And then you've got to communicate with the team back home and, um, do some navigation, which is obviously a huge part of it. Cause it's a, it's a tiny island to hit Barbados is when you've got, you know, three and a half thousand miles of ocean to cross. So there was a lot of navigation. And, and then I did a lot of journaling as well. Like just, I think I was so worried about my mental health because I thought if I'm going crazy, how would I even know <laughs> that I'm, yeah. I'm going crazy? Because there's no one here to say you're being a bit bonkers, Deborah. So I, I would write in this ship's logbook as like a, a, I called it my choose your attitude journal. And I would, I, I would write and then I'd read back each week and go, right, does that sound like a crazy person? <laughs> and actually, instead of sounding crazy I realized that it just had given me all this time to work through all the stuff that you don't normally get the time to stop and work through like you know my father just died of cancer just before and he was in his 50s I had this wonderful time just to kind of reflect and and and, it, and, and in many ways the the downtimes from the rowing were, were quite cathartic because it it gave me those moments of solitude that I, and it would, never would have had in my ordinary life on land yeah, and then the amount of time is, is is a worthwhile thing to note because this took you three and a half months, right? Mm-hmm. And then it, it, you'd originally planned for six weeks with with Andrew on board and and helping with with the rowing. So how how do you stay kind of mentally and physically strong through all of this? Yeah, it's a hugely stressful thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and you know what, what lessons have you learned from that as well? You know, what what have you taken from that experience that you you can apply to your business life now or your personal life too? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the reality is you can't deal with the intensity of, of the, you know, the, the, the stress, uh, both on your mind and your body, going through an experience like that without really prioritizing your well-being. And it's something I've come back to an awful lot since the pandemic started, um, because there's, a, there's been a similar feeling of you know, lockdown and pressure and working remotely for my team in the same way I had out there. And what I what I've found about that is, of course, is that, that there are a whole load of ways that we can prioritize our mental and physical well-being. And they're the things that build our our reserves of resilience. 
um, you know, things like exercise and music and journaling and meditation and um, acts of kindness, you know, all of these things have been scientifically proven to boost our mental and physical well-being. But I think we all know that, don't we? I mean, the challenge is not the knowledge. The challenge is how do we make these things habit when we've got these incredibly busy business lives and, and, and demanding home lives. And so for me, what I learned out there is that I had to, I had to find ways to make them habit. And, and a technique I find helpful is called habit stacking, where you take a habit that's already really established, it's on autopilot, like brushing your teeth twice a day, because we don't even have to think about that, do we? It just happens. And then you stack on top of it a new habit that you want to make stick so that it reminds you to do it. And so, you know, I have a habit stack that when I brush my teeth at night, I have to then put my exercise kit by the side of my bed so that when I step out of bed in the morning, I've got a stand on it. And because yeah. it's there, I think oh, I might as well do it. You know, it's all here ready. And I need that because when I looked at all the different ways we can help our mental and physical well-being, without a doubt, the one that works probably best for me is if I get up and exercise before my kids are up and it's got to be before they're up because nothing happens once they're up. And so once I, I do the habit stack and it's kind of given me that mental nudge to get up and exercise, I show up in this virtual box at the moment as a completely different person. I am more optimistic. I deal with challenges better. I'm probably a nicer colleague to work with. So I'm a bit more upbeat. And so I think we've got to really tap into what is this positivity booster that works for us, that um, allows us to show up well in front of our colleagues and our clients, but also because it has such a positive impact on our well-being. And I think we've all got to guard against that a whole lot more at the moment. And it doesn't need to take long. Like I'm, you know, my exercise is a 10 or a 20 minute hit session to a YouTube video in my living room. So I really think, you know, 10 minutes, surely I can fit that in. I, I kind of have to talk myself into it most mornings, but every time I do it, I feel better. So it's worth it. Yeah. And what I find really interesting is that when you're talking about breaking down things or breaking down these tasks, you're you're actually focusing more on, on just day-to-day well-being rather than yeah. saying, you know, I'll set a task to feel a certain way when I'm halfway there, two thirds of the way there. It, it seems like you're focusing on the day-to-day well-being rather than obsessing too much on the goal itself. Would that would that be right? Yeah, that's right. Because I, I mean, I, I as a leader in my business, I, I'm really conscious of this question: What's it like to be on the other side of your leadership? I often think, what you know, what is it like for people who are receiving my emails or who um, the team who are listening to my conversation? And I really want to show up well for them. And, and so for me, it's, it's the, the bigger goal. We'll all achieve them much better if we're working collaboratively. And I get to choose how I show up in front of them. Nobody else, not my colleagues, not my clients, me. You know, I, I get to show up and choose how I show up every day in the attitude with which I appear in front of them and lead them. And so it's really important to me that I, I break it down into these habit stacks that make me more likely to do some of those things because I know I can't lead unless I'm well, but I also can't lead well unless I'm positive because I want to be positively contagious. And so it, it seems like a, a small thing, but actually I think the ripple effect outwards when we're in a leadership role is significant. Yeah, and I find that really interesting because, well, a few reasons, but one thing is a lot of the people listening to this podcast will be entrepreneurs or they'll at least be senior management figures. So I'm assuming most people are motivated and you know, perhaps maybe not quite as much as yourself, Deborah, but... How do you find it when you're working with people that don't have that mindset like you have? Because I mean, how, how many people are going to commit to a task and really, you know, have the drive and determinate, determination to get things done like you've got? How do you work with people that don't have that? Yeah, 
yeah, these kind of toxic talent. I mean, I've often worked with people who are really talented, but they've been quite toxic to work with. And I, I, I think I always think about um, a, a friend of mine called Strangy. He's like, he's that guy that when you turn up at the pub and everyone's a bit down, like within half an hour, the party's pumping, you know, he's, he's got that kind of contagious positivity. And, and I, I, I often think this, this, my only chance of enthusing people is, is if I'm showing up with the right mindset and, and that, that, that is contagious. We think about a great leader we've worked with, you know, they probably weren't the grumpy one that always sat there complaining. So we have this opportunity to try and impact those who maybe are, aren't as motivated um, by the way we are around them. And we, we, we also have to recognize that sometimes people's negativity is an important element. And sometimes people's lack of motivation is, is a warning sign. And we need to heed those. We need guardians who are noticing things that if we're charging forwards, trying to be positive, we don't always see. And so I do try and stop myself if I'm working with people who are negative. I think, is there actually a, a remit for this that I need to be digging into and it's 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 guarding against some potential crisis in the business or some challenge in the team that I haven't spotted yeah um so I want to go back to the boat now because that you know this is the day it all changed and all of this goes back to that boat trip and as you've said already there were there were three other boats um with one crew member and and, and no no one made it except yourself how do you think you did it what I know you've touched upon a number of things already but yeah. If you could sum it up, if you could distill it, what was it that got you through? That I think what my biggest discovery out there, without a doubt, was that I could choose the attitude with which I dealt with any of the challenges I faced out there. And I, I know that seems quite basic, but I guess I'd, I'd never really processed that before I left dry land. This concept of choose your attitude that I couldn't choose whether I got blown backwards 30 miles or attacked by a shark or nearly run over by a ship or any of those things, which happened quite regularly but I could choose the attitude with which I bounced back from those challenges. And so I came up with this habit around choosing your attitude. And, and I, would, I, I wrote it on the, on the kind of cabin hatch, which is, was in my eyeline as I rode. And I sit by each morning, I'd go, right, come on, Deborah, choose your attitude. Which one is it going to be today? And I'd actually make myself pick one for the day. And it was, you know, it was something like optimism. And then I'd make myself list out loud all the reasons I had to be optimistic. Like, what would the day bring? What would be the benefits if I could stick to it? And I think, well, you know, I suppose if I'm being optimistic, I might pull a bit harder Then maybe I'll do more miles than I've done on any other day. And, and generally, by the time I got to the end of this Choose Your Attitude exercise, I'd feel pretty optimistic or whatever the one was I picked. And that has been the biggest takeaway for me. And it's something I continue to do each morning. And it's not always positive because it's not always a positive attitude we need. Sometimes it's patience if a client is really dragging their heels on something or supportive if a colleague is struggling with something but it's recognizing that I get to choose that and I don't have to be reactionary to what's going on I can I get to choose whether I'm focusing on the positives or the negatives and 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 I think that's been a big part of why I made it across the Atlantic and and what's helped me grow the businesses since mm -hmm. And, um, you know, what, what advice would you have for, for other business owners based on your experience? Because you, you, you run five businesses yourself or you do you Not run five time. or you've launched five? No, I've launched five. You've yeah. launched two, five. Two, two going strong. <laughs> and, and two going. So, yeah, yeah I, I feel like you've made that whole, you, you, you know, you're familiar with the whole journey, the, st the stresses, the challenges, all that kind of stuff. It seems you seem to be at one with it. What, what kind of business lessons 
uh, have you learned and what, what is the kind of biggest piece of advice that you would give to people listening in? Well, firstly, I'm really not at one with it. And I, <laughs> I find it incredibly challenging um, running the business. Worse than sharks or no? Oh, <laughs> totally. I Give me another ocean any day, most of the time. But I, and I think that's partly because it's always about the people, isn't it? And I, and I, I, I think for me, it's become around three questions. I, I always try and keep in mind that I, I, I've, I've worked in leadership development for nearly 20 years now. And I've, I've seen this these three unsaid questions time and time again in various organizations that I think employees have in their heads, they don't necessarily say out, out loud and it's quite subconscious often, but the first thing is they wanna know, do you like me? And of course that's natural, like everyone wants to be liked. Um, and then they, I think they also have this unsaid question of, can I trust you, you know, with my career? Will, will following you get me where I wanna go? And I think they also have this question around, can you help me? You know, can you can I learn from you or can you help me deal with this client? You know, because we when we answer these three questions, it says to them, I care more about you than the numbers. I care more about your life, your development, your career, your confidence, your skill set, rather than just some kind of short term gain. And every time I've I've kept that in mind when I'm interacting with either colleagues or clients, actually, I I feel like that's when I can get the best from people. But it's a conscious effort. And, and I think that's why leadership is so exhausting. It's really, I find it really, really difficult. Um, and it's it's not something that comes naturally to me, but keeping those three questions, do you like me? Can I trust you? Can you help me? In mind that they might be thinking that really helps me interact with them in, in the best way I can. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the human side comes out every single time. And even, even when you're on your own in the ocean, it seems to be like focusing on <laughs> yourself as a person, seems to seems to help with these things uh deborah honestly it's been so fascinating talking to you it's so, so great to hear, hear your your story and, and and what you've learned from it and where it's taken you um so thank you so much and, and thank you also for everyone who's listened into this podcast this has been the day it all changed with city wire sponsored by 91 91 the investment manager seeking opportunities in change the world is constantly shaped by change and change brings opportunities, but opportunities are not always obvious. 91 was born in times of change and has seen past its distractions to seek real investment opportunities to help clients reach long-term investment goals. 91, investing for a world of change. Find out more at 91.com. Capital at risk, 91 is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority.